y'all. Welcome to Shelf Life, a podcast where I, Nicole Barbosa, chat with some of the coolest people in publishing about the wonderful world of books. In each episode, my guest and I will chat all about their book, Real or Imaginary, and then place it on a shelf alongside other authors and books that inspire them. Great literature frozen in time. It's definitely one for all the bibliophiles. In today's episode, I have the immense privilege of chatting with Yvonne Battle Felton, the incredibly talented author of Remembered, which was published by Dialogue Books in February. Originally from the US, where she earned an MA in writing from John Hopkins University, Yvonne moved over to the UK to pursue a creative writing PhD at Lancaster University, where she is now an associate lecturer. In 2017, Yvonne won a Northern Writers Award and was lucky enough to meet her agent at the awards dinner. I'm so glad that this chance meeting took place because it gave us Remembered, which was long listed for the 2019 Women's Prize for Fiction. And even though it's only April, Remembered is without a doubt my favorite book of 2019. From the first page, the reader is instantly transported back in time to 1843 and 1910, where we meet a dynamic collection of characters who stay with you long after you close the book. I loved chatting with Yvonne about Remembered, the important themes throughout the book, and the beautiful characters that live within the pages of this fantastic debut novel. So I am here with the extremely talented and wonderful author, Yvonne Battle Felton. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. How are you? I am very good. The sun is out in some form or fashion, although (laughs) as we were just kind of saying, it's not exactly as sunny as it can be in the United States, but we'll take it, won't we? Exactly. As long as it's not raining. But actually, I even saying that I do love the rain. So I love the rain as well as I find it so therapeutic. I think so, too. And the smell like just (laughs) smells so nice. Do you think this is why all of the laundry companies got on the fact that everybody loves the smell (laughs) of rain? And that's why all of it smells like rain. (laughs) You know what that might be in that whole like fresh breeze or something. Yeah, I want to talk about your amazing book. So congratulations on being longlisted for the Women's Prize. That is uh, just amazing. I just want to know where you were when you found out, what was going through your mind, what's going through your mind still today? Well, first, thank you so much. It's um, it's an amazing accomplishment, and I do feel really pleased. And I mean, I, I love the book. I love the story. I love the characters. I loved the process of writing it. But I was in my room. I was actually, I was like on my bed, and Charmaine called me. And she's like, are you sitting down? And I was like, you know, um, nothing good ever comes from that. So, I was, but I actually was sitting down, and I was thinking, maybe I should stand up. And then she was telling me, and it was... So it made me excited, but I think emotionally I'm always a bit reserved. But I think one thing that was absolutely lovely about her calling is because you could just feel her excitement and enthusiasm and passion through the phone. And sometimes emotionally, that's kind of what I need. Just because like, I know like my daughter will always say like, how do you feel? Are you excited? And I'm like, I am. This is my excited face. I try to replicate that look of excitement that I'll feel inside, but it's just not always, it doesn't always, I think, show on my face, maybe the excitement that I feel. So being surrounded by people who can be that passionate yeah. about it, it's just amazing. Well, and Charmaine is the best cheerleader. We'll give her a bit of a shout out at the beginning. We, we both love Charmaine. I can only imagine, obviously, but I'm just going to say I, I, it has to be one of those moments where you're just like, because obviously you write the book first and foremost for you. I'm assuming one of those accomplishments where it's just like, I've done this. It's amazing. Congratulations to me. But when it's validated by other people telling you through this accolade, because to be longlisted is fantastic, absolutely fantastic. And for someone to say to you within the industry and in audiences and readers, yes, I loved your book too. That just, oh, I, I can't even imagine any other feeling that would feel like that. 
there aren't really other <laughs> other feelings that to kind of compare it to. And I think some people compare it to like um, like watching their kids go out into the world. And I really don't because I have kids and it's a completely different feeling, like being excited for them as being excited for the book. But I think I've been fortunate in that those same feelings. So the long list has been an amazing experience when I completed my PhD for the Viva when it was um, when I won the Northern Writers Award, one of the most awesome things about winning the Northern Writers Award was meeting Elise Dillsworth, who's now my agent. And so she was one of the judges and her passion and enthusiasm, not just for the writing, but for me as a writer and me as a person. That was just amazing. And that's the same thing that like when Charmaine was interested in it and when we met her, we went out for the celebratory lunch before I'd even signed the contract and her enthusiasm and passion. And again, not just for the book and the story and the writing, but for me and my, my career and me as a person, I think that has been so amazing. Yeah. And so that was also with um, getting long listed. It was her being happy for the book, but then also for like the person. And it was just like, that's so incredible. It's that personal touch that you kind of just, I don't know, didn't really, maybe don't always as a writer know that you need, but then when you get it, you're just like, oh my gosh, this is exactly what I need. Yeah, and it's exciting, but it's also justified in the sense that anyone who picks up your book, and I'm imagining that it will be in the thousands upon thousands now, (laughs) also, the cover doesn't hurt either. This cover is just absolutely gorgeous. I had more to do with the creation of it, but really, I didn't. I'm just going to stare at it while you're talking. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know what? I feel like when I saw it, so like Charmaine, when they, her and her team, they sent like what it would look like online. They sent it through the email and I really can't visualize it. Even through the email, it was kind of like, that's a thing, yeah. but it wasn't like actually on a book. And so, you know, you either feel a certain way about it, you're looking at the colors and you're trying to imagine it. But I'm honestly one of those people that unless it's done, I really can't picture it in that way. Yeah, of course. So I didn't actually fall in love with it until I could like hold it in my hands. Yeah. And it came and I'm looking at it and I'm like, oh my gosh, it feels like skin, which sounds kind of like, you know, creepy, but I don't know, it was just like soft and warm and it just kind of like felt alive. And then the colors were vibrant and it was like, yeah, this is 100% the cover for this book. As people read the story, you know, we have the scrapbook that is at the beginning of the story. And for me, when I closed this book, I was like, this is the scrapbook. This, these stories are in here and this is what the equivalent of the scrapbook is. And I just think that's so lovely. And I don't know if it's just because blue is my favorite color. I don't think that is it at all. But it's just, I think it just captures you and it's just so magical. And, you know, as you read Spring and Tempe's story, it made me feel very connected. And I don't think I'm giving anything away by saying this, but I felt that there was a very profound extra character, which is the river in your book, because a lot happens in the river. Did you have kind of a vision for the cover when you were writing the story? I can't honestly say I pictured the cover. Um, I had a lot of images in my head throughout writing it. So like there was an image in my head of Tempe on fire and in front of this house um, in a doorway of leading to a house. And I think that was more scene by scene. I had a picture in my head of a character and it really wasn't Edward, but I had a person that kind of inspired that scene or an image in my head of a person in a streetcar barreling down like one of the windy streets of Philadelphia and it was on fire and he's holding just like a bottle of flaming fire, just barreling down kind of out of control. And so those were images and I can't say I ever thought, well, this is the cover for the book, but it was more like this is the image for this scene. And so when we started getting samples or proofs of the cover Mm -hmm. of the book, that was completely Charmaine and her team. 
And then like you could look at the one and be like, oh, I don't know. I think just the, some elements of the first cover maybe didn't speak to me. And I could see maybe why they were using them. But yeah. it kind of was like, hmm. And then Elise and I would talk and Elise would offer feedback. And, and so that was a really good process because it didn't have to be, well, my limits on what I can see yeah, and what exactly. I can't see. exactly. It was collaborative. Exactly. And then so then when they came back with, okay, what about this one? It was kind of like, oh, okay. Yeah. But then again, like what's having it in my hands was when I could say like, oh, yeah, yep. but then even taking the cover off of it. To me, that was like amazing. Like, I just loved the spine of it. I just loved I'm that. I'm holding it up. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah. And people listening are like, um, I still can't visualize yeah. it. <laughs> Buy the book and then you'll be able to visualize it. There you go. Once you buy your own copy, you too can take off the cover. (laughs) Definitely can't have mine ever, so I can get your own copy. Oh, that's so lovely. And, you know, that's what's so great about Charmaine and Dialogue. They're just such a collaborative team. And so it's no surprise that, you know, the whole process was lovely. I would love for you to just give a brief synopsis of what your book is about. But I also like to ask this as well because I like to hear what your version of the synopsis is. Sure. So remember, it is the story of Spring, an emancipated slave, along with her dead sister, Tempe. They are telling stories, constructing their path to lead Edward, her dying son, home. Edward's been beaten by police, really for a crime that he may or may not have committed. And at the heart of the story is not the crime, and it's not whether or not he did it, but it's also a reminder of the ways that people are judged and the differences in the judicial system and a system that would allow it so that there doesn't need to be a jury, there doesn't need to be a judge involved where people just kind of make their judgments and assumptions. And I don't even know if they ever factor in the truth, but this was a story that's about love and family and stories and community, the past and the ways that were haunted by it. That's a very good synopsis. I definitely couldn't have done that justice. (laughs) You know your book definitely better than anyone else. And I really want to touch on, before we actually get into the parts of the story that I just love so much, I really want to get onto the title of the book because I think it's really interesting when you have books with titles that are just one word. It's just like beloved or remembered. And it's not a simple word. And it's not a simple title because as you get more and more into the story, as you delve deeper and deeper into the story and with the characters, so many feelings come into it. I remember messaging you on Twitter and being like, I have never read a book where I've wanted to like scream at the characters, hug them, cry, laugh. Like I just literally had all the feelings. And the importance of being remembered and of course, how we feel when we remember someone special in our lives it just elicits these feelings and it just makes you so nostalgic. And I would absolutely love for you to talk through why you chose this title. And also just out of curiosity, did you consider any other titles or kind of, was it a collaborative effort like the cover was, but why Remembered? So I guess I'll answer that in the ways that I remembered it. (laughs) For me now, what the title represents is kind of you being in control of the way that you are remembered. And I think that's really important. It's that whole idea about you writing your own story, because otherwise other people will remember you in any sort of way that they want. And they'll still do that. But if you don't, I guess, have the ability to tell your own story, it's a gift. And so part of that is just the idea of my characters being able to, I guess, decide how they want their story to be told. 
And whereas they don't get to do that because um, throughout the book, you'll see the newspaper clippings. And that's the way that someone else told their story. So no matter what was happened, it was reduced to a headline or to a paragraph, in some cases, two or three. Most cases, their names weren't there. Or if they were there, it was maybe in relation to a crime or wanted and things like that. So it's these characters getting to choose the way that they are remembered, the way that they remember history and the way that they pass that down. But the title in the book, like through most of my PhD, the title of the book was Letters to Edward. And that was because what I wanted it to be. I love that too. Well, thank you. (laughs) But I was imagining that was letters. So they were stories that Spring told to Edward through letters. But then it it kind of started getting to be more complicated because Mm -hmm. it was kind of like, well, who taught her to read? And then who taught her to write? And then who taught Edward to read and write? And when? as well. So a lot was riding on these letters. And then at some point, I'm thinking, okay, another character could read it to him, which is kind of, I mean, it happens all the time. It happens all the times where people read to other people to to share that understanding. Mm -hmm. But it seems like there's still also, it's them interpreting the words before you get them. And so I want to kind of Edward to have immediate access to whatever this information was. But I found that um, while writing it, it started to get, I guess, tangled in, caught up under this web of these letters. And how was I constructing who was going to be the teller? And and it just, at some point during my PhD, it was kind of like, okay, you know what? Um, It's starting to weigh down the story in a way that I didn't want it to do. I wanted it to kind of open it up. There were some awesome scenes, I will say, about with with these letters. Yeah. (laughs) But they ultimately, it was kind of like, because it was holding it back or it felt like it was holding me back, it was like, okay, let's think of a different title. Mm -hmm. And so it went from Letters to Edward. And then I think one of the working titles, um, I don't know how long I would say it was a working title. It might have been like a day. (laughs) It was maybe, um, I had like Keeper of Things. For some reason, I kind of got enamored with like Keeper of, and then it was like, of, of what? And then... I don't know. I think it was probably more timing. And it was like, okay, you need to come up with a title. Maybe it was more for me to kind of manage it. And what's this going to be? And then it was Mm -hmm. memories, all these things. And then it was remembered. And then it just kind of like that stuck the rest of the PhD. Yeah. Yeah, it just and so that was the name that stuck. Yeah. And I think I do love Letters to Edward. That's such a lovely title. But I almost feel like if it was Letters to Edward, you would just think of Edward. And I feel like remembered applies to all of the characters, how all the characters remembered, how they remember things. And it definitely encapsulates the true meaning of the story, I think, more. I think you're right. Definitely Edward's story, if they were yeah. letters to him. Yeah. If it was letters of Edward, yeah. even then it would have been <laughs> yeah. his story. It's not diminishing Edward's story at all. It's just the characters throughout the Tempe, Spring, Ella, Agnes, Mama Skins, all of those characters are the story. And definitely, definitely seeing Remembered as a title. <laughs> One of the things that I also wanted to touch on that I thought was just so beautiful about this book, and again, I messaged you about this, just kind of as a, a visibility thing, I kind of live messaged <laughs> Yvonne while I was reading the book. And some of your questions, I was like, oh, and you'd be like, oh, is this ironic? Or this is the irony of this, this, and I'd be like, oh, who's it? What Yvonne's not saying, and she was just like, oh my gosh, if I get one more message from Nicole about this book. <laughs> 
Oh my gosh. But yeah, I just, I, because I loved this book so much, I just couldn't wait at a, a respectable hour to message Yvonne. I was like all hours of the day, like at my desk at work, just being like, I'm not actually reading this right now, but I have just thought about this and I need to know the answer. But I wanted to chat about the definition of what free means and how it was just so fluid throughout the book. And I'm not going to give it away because I don't want to spoil it, but how Edward becomes free at a certain point, how the sisters become free throughout the book. And it is very much woven throughout the entire story. And in fact, you know, it can be about Ella and how she was originally free before she was abducted by Walker at the age of 12, who is a white slave owner. And, you know, there's the curse at the farm that leaves people feeling enslaved but free at the same time. This theme of remembered is definitely throughout the book, but also being free and what that actually means and your definition of it. And I would love for you to talk around the concept of the way that this was written, the way that free was written in this way and why it is just so important to the story. I think it's partially because there are a lot of ways that the slaves were enslaved and it was emotionally, psychologically, it was creatively, it was physically, it was mentally, it was their future, it was the way that they could be remembered. It's been a legacy and we're still living with that legacy of it. And then I think it's kind of also that same sort of way for free. While acknowledging that you are physically captive and that you're you're limited, it's maybe what I wanted from my characters in fiction that they may not have had in life was some agency. I guess the freedom to define things for themselves and to be able to say, you know what, actually, slavery is hard and raising a family in this environment and being themselves in this environment is hard and not just hard as in like something to overcome, but there's a system that's making it hard. It's an intentional system of oppression based on racism and hate and ignorance and all of these things, all these structures built to, to make their lives near impossible. Yeah. And so it's giving my character a choice and a way to kind of look at, well, how can they define something? How can they, within this confines, within this coffin, how can they find life? There was the WPA had interviewed emancipated slaves and it was the decades for some of them after they had been enslaved. And so some of them were talking about their experience of freedom and their experience of slavery. And some of the comparisons that were that they were making actually showed that being free in America at that time was just as bad as being a slave in America at that time. Yeah. Because there was an yeah. idea that once people were set free physically, that you know everything else was was going to follow, and that can only follow if society is ready to say actually we were wrong and we have set up so many systems of oppression, and if they don't emancipate those systems of oppression as well, mm -hmm. then it's still, you know, you're still having slaves just in another form. And so it seems like right after that, then there was all these laws crafted that meant that black people couldn't do this, they couldn't do that, they had to make a certain amount of money to stay free. And so when you couldn't do that, because people still weren't hiring you, or because you didn't have the skills they said they were looking for, or because they were hiring you, but not paying you enough to support your family, you could be re-enslaved again. And then you look at the the prison system in the US. I wanted for them to have that freedom, like I said, of being able to, to exercise some sort of agency. And it was as much about me exploring the ways that these characters could be in this situation mm -hmm. and 
maybe not be defeated by this situation. And so I think that was the beauty of fiction. Whereas in life, there was, I think, so much more hate and hardship and things to try to, to maneuver that I think it becomes, you can't just say in life, well, as long as they have a positive attitude, this is going to be because it wasn't that way. But I think in fiction, it was just able for me to explore different ways of freedom and different ways that my characters might have found happiness. Because I think I wanted that. I wanted there to be some sort of happiness and hope. And that's probably because I needed to see that. And I feel like as well as what you've just touched on, there is a lot of freedom in the narrative as well in what these characters give to themselves essentially so when ella comes to walker's farm and the community there mama skins and agnes they still have control over their lives in in some way they decide that they Mm -hmm. have restrictions but they are also going to control their narrative and no one is going to essentially maybe not tell them what to do there is that restriction there and and the the hardships that they go through and that's not to diminish that at all it's just more that these characters have decided that this is the situation at the moment but they're always planning they're always deciding that there's going to be that next step they're not defeated and it's I think for me very hopeful when you read that as well in the sense that even at the darkest deepest horrible times in this book and there are some horrible times and it is hard to read but at the same time the truths that are part of this story the beauty within this story is that those characters don't give up and I feel like that was very true to the time and I feel that it was a very beautiful aspect of the story I really enjoyed that Thank you. I have to also say, so um, I wrote Remembered as part of my PhD that I was doing at Lancaster University. And I think one of the beautiful things about doing the degree and having my PhD be in creative writing was I got to work with Jen Ashworth. And it was great because she would read a section and then ask questions that allowed me to say, okay, you know what, maybe challenge what I either thought might happen or imagine or reimagine the sort of agency and the relationships and the things. So that was really useful to have like Jen as a close reader from the very beginning to be able to to look at ways that I might challenge the narrative or the reader even. Yeah. So I just wanted to make sure to say like, so it wasn't like just me in a vacuum kind of being <laughs> like, oh, you know, what can I do and, yeah. and how might it do it? So it's definitely being able to have Jen as a reader gave me, I think, that ability to be able to say, well, so what might happen and, and why? And because you're always conscious there is an actual reader on the other side. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure to have that sounding board to kind of bounce ideas off of a prospective reader is invaluable because I imagine that when you are in your head and when you're creating this beautiful story and you actually put it down to paper and you have it in your mind, okay, this is how I want this character to be written. This is what I want their story to be. But it's almost like when you run it by somebody it can change your perspective, actually, can it? Because it comes from a different place. That's exactly right. I usually start with my characters in my head. Instead of necessarily imagining their story, it's kind of how might they respond to this and how might they respond to that. And then I'm getting to know them as I'm writing. But then you're right, having someone else to be able to say, to read that and to say, well, hmm, is this stereotypical or this looks like this? And and so, but you know, it's funny to back to your other question about the river as a character. When I was writing it and drafting it, I remember Jen saying something about like something similar about the river. And I hadn't seen it at the time because it was kind of like it was important in so many ways to me 
but I hadn't thought of it as, I guess, crucial to like their experience. But so having that outside perspective was kind of like, oh, look at that. Isn't that interesting? So it allows you sometimes, I think, to see things about the story that as the writer, maybe I didn't recognize. And it was the story saying, okay, this is important and kind of, you know, weaving its way into it. I think that's what's so wonderful about reading because every reader is going to have a different perspective. Every reader is going to have different thoughts. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting how the river jumped out at me as being a central character throughout the book. And if you literally just think about what a river can represent in so many different ways, so it represents forwardness, it represents a journey, it represents cleansing the soul. It's irony, but it's, it's beautiful. And I feel that maybe in a way, because it didn't, jump out at you as and it took the reader to share that with you maybe that's what made it even more beautiful because it was more natural it was more like well placed whereas it didn't feel like it was in your face it just felt like it was a really beautiful complimentary part of the story so I think that's great so I want to talk about the time that this book takes place and also the setting so this book is set in Philadelphia in 1910 neither of us were there at the time but what's great about reading (laughs) and what's great about history and research is you can go back And I don't know about you, but I just absolutely love historical fiction. And what's really nice about it is you can get lost in the past and you can learn things that you never knew about Mm. those times and those places. And there are themes throughout your book, police brutality, racial profiling, to name a couple, that are still relevant today, that unfortunately are still relevant today. And I want to know more about when you sat down to write this. So did you always know that you wanted to write Edward's story to write their story in Philadelphia in 1910 or did this kind of come more from when you were doing the actual research? Um, I would say it came more from while I was the period while I was doing the actual research. So when I started out I had questions around the emancipation and kind of what happens next. I feel like we don't do a lot of talking about how families might have reconnected. I think there was like um, a myth that families reconnected they found one another or they were on the same plantation and they just kind of went off together and that is not everyone's reality. So even knowing that some people never found each other and then also if they did find each other, so if they, if someone was sent down South and they made their way up closer North or if fractured families all joined up in somewhere North where they felt safe, whatever it was, because of course in the North there was still Jim Crow. So let's say they, they did find one another physically, mm-hmm. but then emotionally, As a mother, I think I would always feel like these are my these are my children coming home, but I would also also feel guilt. And even though I was in a situation that I couldn't control, I think I would still feel like um, depressed, let down, disappointed, hurt, like all these angry that I couldn't protect my children, even within the system that wouldn't allow me to protect them. Um, And then as children, I would imagine that for some of them even knowing that they were sold or that they were stolen and that they that their parents couldn't protect them, I would imagine that there's still some sort of hurt. It was a traumatic experience for both sides. And I don't think historically people who label such things don't seem to look at slavery as traumatic. I don't know why. They seem to think like, oh, well, you know, it was every day. Or there's this idea that, well, it was the norm back then. It was actually never normal. Just because it happened doesn't make it normal. Like now we're at a point where we can see that, oh, wow, you know, when you send soldiers to war, it's traumatic and they come back pretty messed up sometimes. 
And we can do that for that. We can look at um, other victims of other things and say, oh, that was traumatic. They've been traumatized. They probably have a post-traumatic disorder. But still with slavery, it doesn't seem that people just want to, to act like it was some sort of magical therapy. It boggles the mind. Because we don't seem to, as a country, the U.S. doesn't seem to talk about this traumatic. And I guess talking about it as traumatic means that then they have to then say, wow, we were the cause of this trauma. And so maybe that's why they don't want to talk about it. But I wanted to talk about it. And I wanted to see stories where people were had been enslaved and they may be connected. Actually, when I started writing it, I was hoping there'd be some happy endings. And I was hoping that there'd be a love story because I really wanted a story where the characters just found love. Like maybe they were looking for it and found it. Maybe yeah. they weren't looking for it and found yeah. it. And so it was kind of that idea. And then it part of the research, I'm listening to slave narratives, reading slave narratives, and just getting all this information. And then while I was doing that here in the UK, I'm also reading, you know, news in the US and there's police shooting after police shooting and in the back, like just all these different things. And they were still just getting off for it. And there was no sort of repercussions for it. And it was that realization that that narrative is not changing. Even when we're watching it on video, they're still getting away with it. And that narrative they don't even have to change their story. They're still saying, oh, he was running away. And the video can be playing in the background, showing something else ridiculous and it needs to stop. So while I was doing that, that's when the parallel started for me. And so the book was always going to be showing period of the emancipation. But then 1910 kind of came about because it was like, wow, these things are still happening. And so it was 1910 because I wanted Spring to still be alive. I wanted Edward to be of a certain age, but not to be, I think, much older than a certain age. And I just kind of want to explore kind of what happens next to these central characters as well. It is fascinating because even though, as I said, neither you or I were there at the time, the importance of telling these stories, I think for me, is knowing and understanding that even though they happened you know, over 100 years ago, it doesn't mean they're any less relevant or any less important to be telling these stories. And I feel like... These themes throughout the book, as I said, are unfortunately still prevalent today. And I feel that it is a massive disservice to those people, to the characters in real life, and that we should be telling these stories. I absolutely think we should be telling these stories. I would definitely, definitely prefer if these themes were not relevant today. But at the same time, I feel that by telling these stories, it's saying that this is still important. I think you're right. And I think there um, there will always be people who say, um, well, this happened hundreds and hundreds of years ago and we should move on and stuff like that. And just like anybody else, I will be happy the day that we can move on. Exactly. And the day that we can move on is a day when we say, wow, you know what? All the systematic racism and oppression has been gone. We've dismantled all these structures of racism and oppression. Yes. And now that no longer exists. And the moment that happens, then maybe we will no longer need stories about slavery and stories that show the legacy of it. But because we're still living that legacy, we do have to keep telling these stories because some people don't seem to understand. I feel like one day someone's going to say like, oh, I don't want to read another slavery story. And then I can say, well, stop living the legacy then. Yeah. As long as we're living this legacy, these stories will, I think, continue to be relevant. And even when we aren't, we'll still need to retell stories of these magnitudes because I think as humans, we always need to see how low we were, Yes. how far we've become. I mean, I don't know about you, but growing up in the U.S., you know, as much as I love Texas and as much as I, you know, am proud to be from there, 
learning Texas history from age five to 18 is good, but also I want to learn about other aspects of history as well. And there's something that a textbook just doesn't give us. And that is the voice of the people who were there, the people who were going through these struggles. And there is absolutely a place for academia and for learning at school and learning in the classroom. But when you can take those stories outside of the classroom and you can actually, perhaps it's through fiction, perhaps it's through nonfiction, but when you can take those stories outside of the classroom and it comes alive more for me because it's not being told like in a text academia kind of way, it comes through as more real. I don't know if you feel that way, but that's how I feel. I think it's because some textbooks, at least when I was growing up, they were very dry and I don't think they were meant to make connections. And I think part of that, it gives people the illusion that real things didn't happen to real people. If we can reduce them to maybe one question that's multiple choice on an essay, then maybe there's not room for that human experience. But moving beyond that, that's how I think we create better humans. So when we look at, well, which is the question that we're really asking and maybe whose story is it to to tell or to answer, Mm -hmm. then I think we can kind of dig down and we can maybe break that barrier because I think there's that distance. It is about telling those stories in a way that's human Mm -hmm. and that um, creates connections instead of creating divides. Yeah, absolutely. And if my history books looked like this, I would definitely be more inclined to pick them up. (laughs) Looking at going into the character of Edward, who is Spring's son. And as you touched on when you were giving the synopsis of your story, Edward is accused of driving a streetcar into a shop window. And when Spring visits him in the hospital, as I referred to earlier, she reads from this very special scrapbook that contains newspaper clippings, it contains diary entries, and other important information about where Edward comes from. And she is essentially taking Edward on a journey her journey, her family's journey, her sister's journey. So he knows about his family, so he can go home in peace, which is how I interpreted it. And as we're just kind of touching on our home, uh, the United States, just then, I would love to know your thoughts on why you think the concept of home and going back home, whether that's either spiritually or physically, has such a strong power on us. Because We've both been over in the UK for quite some time, and it is essentially our home away from home. It will never be home because it's it's not home, but it is our home, you know, for the time being. And every time I go back to Texas, it has this power over me that sometimes I pretend doesn't actually exist. But when I get there, you know, the y'all start coming out more, and it is just that version of home that you know so well and you feel very comfortable with. And it would be interesting to know what your thoughts are on this concept of home and going back home and what that really means for the characters in the book. I think at the end of the day, it's one of those reminders that people want some of the same things. And so whether that's a place to call home and that could be a building, but it could also be more a feeling, a connection where Maybe your family or maybe your memories are or maybe um, something really good happened or you've left something behind there. It could be a physical structure, a mental one, an emotional connection. I know for me, it's been a lot of things. And I think it probably wasn't until I came to the UK so far from my physical home in the US that the idea of home started to really resonate with me and for me. And so when I look at, well, so where am I going to live the next few years of my life? Where's home going to be? That question was one that it kind of, it came up time and time again in my fiction and in also my nonfiction, that search. And 
exploring it through the book was kind of like, I guess, a way of maybe understanding it for myself as well. And so my characters, if I look at some of the things that they want, and, you know, maybe to, to see your family happy, to see them healthy, to be connected, to be together, to be free, to be in love. So some of the things that they want, it's, it's just the things that other characters want and that other people want. But the obstacles in their way are huge. And so it was kind of like, so many, I guess so much of what seems to be going on in the world now seems to be um, about the search that people have for a home or creating a home. And the idea that other people don't want to open up whatever they think of is home for them or whatever they think is theirs to someone else. And so, so much of what we seem to be, I guess, grappling with as societies now does seem to, to kind of go back to home and ideas of what that might be. And I think we all have... At the end of the day, it might not be a postcode or a zip code when we think of home. It might be a feeling and it might be just be a place where you feel welcome and safe and loved and cared for and respected. So whatever that definition is, I think so many of us are searching for it. I feel like sometimes you go through your entire life looking for home and looking for that feeling. And some people find it and some people never do. And it doesn't mean that it's any less special when you find it. It could take you years. It could, you know, be there waiting for you when you get back. But this sense of belonging and this sense mm-hmm. of understanding where you come from and whether it's some place that you want to return, maybe it's some place that you want to forget and you want to move on and find that new definition of what home means for you and what belonging means for you. But as you've just yeah. touched on, what I would absolutely love is to wake up and be part of a society, be part of a community that is welcoming to everyone and that is absolutely open for everyone to join, to be a part of, to feel welcome. And I hope and I have dreams that one day that will happen and that we'll be a much more welcoming society both on this side of the pond and and back in the United States. And I just feel like one of the aspects of your book that I loved so much is that you go through this journey with these characters and you not only want them to be happy when you're reading the book, but you also want them to have that sense of belonging and that Mm. sense of actually feeling like they are allowed to feel what they want to feel, be who they want to be. But at the same time, they do still very much up until the last page struggle with identity and to also feel like it's okay to be who they want to be. But also what's so great as well is because it takes place over so many years, you get to see different versions of their identity. You get to see different versions of who they are. And it's not just one straightforward story. It's not just one person's story. It is a beautifully woven collection of stories. And that for me was one of the greatest gifts of your book was being able to see those characters go through so many different versions of themselves. Oh, thank you. I think that search for identity, I think that's 100% about them. It's trying to decide who they are and how they want to be seen. And also just that ability to be able to, I think it's something that we take for granted, the ability to be able to put forward the version of yourself that you want other people to see. I think that's one thing that Brain mentions as well. For years, it's kind of, there's a version of her truth, but then there's what other people have thought was her truth or her reality. And them only being comfortable with the version of truth as long as she fulfilled their version of it. And I think that happens in life as well. People have an idea of who someone is and that person may not live up to that or live down to that. Mm -hmm. 
And at some points, it doesn't seem to matter to the person with these ideas because this is the one version that they can see and that they will see or allow themselves to see. So regardless of how the other person responds, they're still only going to see this one version, which actually I think sums up, again, a lot of the problems that people have with other people. It's when we're not able to recognize that actually. And one thing I want this book to do is to remind people that other people have stories. We don't necessarily know their stories. Mm -hmm. May not even be our business. So you'll have people and they'll, they'll ask people a question. Like if someone asks me where I'm from, it like the way I answer it actually depends on where I am. Mm-hmm. And so I might be in London for the day and someone will say, oh, where are you from? And so I'm thinking, well, hmm, do they mean like New Jersey, Maryland? Mm-hmm. Or they mean, typically they mean where in the UK am yeah. I from? Yeah. And so that might be me saying Lancaster because yeah, I came from Lancaster to get to London that day. Mm-hmm. Then depending on who that person is, but the answer they expect seems to be like, oh, I just flew in from Maryland, like just last night. Yeah. And you're like, no, it really, it's like a, it's a more complicated answer than that. Yeah. Because do they know my PhD journey? Are they asking me about like, <laughs> like um, my arts organization or my writing? But then do it's not, is it my job to answer the question I think they have or that they ask? And really, if all I want is a cup of coffee, just give me the cup of coffee. Yeah. <laughs> swap life stories we don't need to swap life stories (laughs) but that is so interesting though because depending also how much you trust somebody and how much you know you how well you know someone is how much you're willing to share that version of yourself and to share that that story and that journey with them because again like yeah if you're just kind of passing by in a shop or whatever and they're like oh you are you american where are you from yeah yeah i'm from texas or whatever but you know if you and i were gonna meet up and you know have a chat or whatever i'd be like oh my gosh okay so when i was born i was from here like throughout the book as well is that they don't have to talk or even divulge the information that they take because you know if you think about it actually this would be a much lesser book but I was just thinking that it could have just been that Spring just kind of gave as little detail as possible although I know Tempe would let her we'll get on to Tempe in a minute she is hilariously feisty and I love it but yeah I mean Spring could have just explained to Edward that this is where we came from and you know we're here now it's not as important as where we are now and we're here and this is this is the present this is now but the past is it makes you know up all of us it's something that you can't avoid and and I don't say avoid as in a negative connotation but it's just something that it haunts you and that is definitely throughout the book as well and that brings us very well into (laughs) to to Tempe so I when I started reading the book because you find out that Tempe is a ghost very early on and These main characters, so Spring and Tempe, I know that Ella and Agnes are very important characters as well. So I say Spring and Tempe are the main characters in some form or fashion, but I think what's great about reading this book is you can interpret it any way you want. But for me, the main characters were Spring and Tempe and their sisters. And as I said, we discover very early on that Tempe is a ghost and she sticks very close to Spring. And there's a line in the book that, you know, I can just summarize. And it's essentially that Tempe is always there, always close by when someone is, is dying, when someone is, is passing. And Tempe, I'm, I'm smiling just thinking about it. She doesn't keep her opinions to herself. She's very wordy for a ghost. She's very loud. <laughs> and... <laughs> Most ghosts you think are just, you know, friendly and, you know, just going to pass on by. But no, Tempe is as alive as any as any ghost is going to be. And it really got to me, this bond between these two sisters. It's it's just so special. And, you know, I myself have a younger sister, so it definitely connected with me. And at times, I don't know how you feel about this. I mean, you, you have children, but it can feel like you're 
sometimes taking turns protecting one another. And it doesn't matter if you're the oldest. It doesn't matter if you're the youngest. It's And I'm not saying that, you know, brother and sister relationships aren't special as well, but it's something about two sisters that just feels different. And I would just kind of love your thoughts on this. I mean, what, what do you love about Spring and Tempe, you know, as you're creating them, as they jump off the page for you? And what are your thoughts, you know, on this special bond that comes between two sisters? I think for... Spring and Tempe. I do quite like their relationship. And Spring, she needs Tempe. And I feel like Tempe also needs Spring. When she's alive, I think... Well, no, I think she's pretty consistent, Tempe. <laughs> Whether she's dead or alive, she's pretty um, pretty outspoken. Yep. Um, and she, uh, there's things that she wants, and there's ways that she feels about whether or not she gets those things that she wants. And I think death just gives her maybe a bit of a larger perspective. Mm-hmm. And it also gives her insights that she can either share or not share. But their bond, I think you're right in that it's because there are moments where they do protect one another. So that haunting, I think, it doesn't have to be a bad feeling. Like that that she's haunted by her ghost is kind of like she's visited by her, her sister mm-hmm. and she wants that. She misses her. I think that's one of the beautiful things with their relationship. But also even writing it, Tempe was just, I loved her as a character and I didn't want her to go. She was kind of like, oh, how can she stay around and still... Um, continue to be an influence and then she was like I'll be a ghost and I was like okay so (laughs) all right Tempe you can be a ghost that's fine so I mean she she has unfinished business I mean she you know she's not done and you know again without giving anything away she dies in the most horrific tragic way and I cried that's when I messaged you and I was just like what are you doing to me Yvonne this is I cannot take this anymore it is it's just so hard there's a hilarious picture of this girl and it says above it oh I'm really getting into this character yep they're dead (laughs) (laughs) and it's so true you get you get into these characters and you get to the point where you're just like oh my gosh this is my favorite character yep they're gone (laughs) and turn the page and they're dead (laughs) but what is your favorite thing about this bond I mean it's just so special Spring is very she's a great character as well so what what do you love about their special bonds you know what there's actually a line um, um, and I can't think of it off the top of my head but it's um it's early on in the book when Spring says we've been keeping secrets since we were little girls why would death change that and I think that actually does sum up their relationship because yes she is dead but their relationship doesn't necessarily change and the limits and the boundaries of their relationships, their personalities don't necessarily change. Although spring has the benefit of getting older and maybe getting more mature and gaining some perspective. She has the benefit of living and at some point having the family that Tempe had wanted or had had. And so I think it kind of, for me, it explores those complex relationships within family. And that's also what, Tempe can do as well. So she has this news and she seems to be able to control or determine what news she gives and how much involved she gets in the giving of the news. Mm-hmm. It takes a certain pleasure from having that information and from giving you know, telling her sister, well, I can tell you this, but they can't come to you. So she's kind of this conduit of information. Yeah. So it's yeah. kind of, they do take care of each other. I think they still tease and torment each other in those special ways that only sisters can do. Mm-hmm. I remember once my sister was telling me that like um, few people in the world have the gift of being able to annoy my sister the way that I can. <laughs> and, um, and I, and I, I think that's that. always been like a source of pride for me that yes. just like, 
I think it's like I can do it quite well, you know, experience. And I'm the little sister, so it's kind of like I don't know. It's that just that special place. Yes. And my oldest nephew is able to do it as well to her. So it's just like knowing the right thing at the right time. Yes. But <laughs> I think for sisters, and this is like as old as I am, and my older sister is two years older than me. So it's kind of like even still, like every once in a while, it's just like, uh, here's a reminder. Yeah. But, it's and I think my characters kind of do that with one another so like death it doesn't make her now this idolized character she doesn't become any kinder in death her memory she kind of controls the way she's remembered because she she won't stay gone yeah absolutely and it also shows you that this bond transcends life and death and essentially I love how you just said that like she determines when she's going to go, where she's going to be, how she's going to show up. I wish I was more like that. I wish I was more like Tempe, where I just literally didn't care what people thought. I did my own thing. and But at, this, at the same day, she still shows up for spring. And I think that's something that is really important, is, is not diminishing the fact that she shows up and yeah. she's there. And I feel like even though this was just kind of little snippets and little chapters throughout the book is we hear from Edward as well. I don't want to give too much away as to where Edward is at the beginning of the book, but we do hear from Edward. And I thought it was really interesting that you chose to do it that way in terms of flashbacks and kind of peeks into what actually happened leading up to the streetcar incident and where Edward was coming from. And I was actually quite proud of myself that I kind of managed to figure out before I got to those points where I thought it was going to lead. And again, definitely messaged you. And I was like, I think this is where this is going. Is this true? And I thought it was interesting that it was through flashbacks and it was through seeing it in a different light. Why did you choose to do it that way? I mean, obviously you were going to give Edward a voice because it's so important that every character has a, a voice in this. And even though there are little snippets of the flashback and, and learning what happened. It doesn't mean that Edward's voice isn't is any less powerful, but it's it's almost like we don't actually get to the whole version. It's just little bits of it. Why did you choose to do that? Well, it's interesting because at first, actually, people weren't going to hear from Edward at all. Like readers weren't going to get to hear from him at all. He was it was everything was going to be through either the female characters' versions because if you notice, like that's who mostly gets to speak. I did like that too. <laughs> so he was not going to get to say like a word. And then Elise was like, um, so after she read the like the full manuscript, yeah. Elise, my agent, was like, she felt like readers, in order to be able to connect with Edward, but also in order to be able to connect with Spring's pain, that they needed to see Edward, at least in some version of life. And I think, so at first I had to think about it because I knew I didn't want him to have a miraculous recovery. Yeah. No. And, um, and I didn't want to, this is what I did moment sort of thing. So it was kind of like, well, how can I reconcile what I want as far as how much readers get to see him, mm-hmm. how much he gets to speak with also the need for readers to connect. Because when she gave, when that feedback was great and I felt like, yeah, she's right. People, you know, will need to connect with him on some level, even if it is to, um, to be able to say, okay, this is what spring feels about this. Yeah. Because for some readers, like for me, if, um, if it's a mother and they're saying this with their child, I will automatically just be like, okay, this, this is how this mother feels. Yeah. But I do know, and that's actually from my visa experience with the U.S., that, uh, well, coming here, they were asking me, the first time I was doing it, they were asking me about kind of like what it means to be a mom. Mm-hmm. Where, um, and so I wrote this like really long letter <laughs> about like everything I had done in my momming career and like bills I had paid and doctor's appointments and all that stuff. So for some people, they do need to kind of understand that in a different way. So it was like, okay, it was really val- you know valuable feedback. And so the choice to, to only show him in flashbacks... Mm-hmm. 
it was my way to give the reader what they might need, but also to not give him more voice than I wanted him to have. Yeah. And so that's why you kind of get the glimpses and the snippets, which I hope will make him come alive in, um, well, come alive. Yeah. Um, <laughs> In, in the reader's mind and to be able and to, to form those connections, but also to be able to understand a bit more about Spring, like how she feels, and also to maybe answer or not answer the question of whether or not he did or didn't do it on purpose. Yeah, and I actually am tearing up a little bit just thinking about it, but going back to what we said about those stories being told and stories mm. that didn't actually get told. And we don't know what was the truth. A lot of it was down to what was in the newspapers and things like that. So the fact that Edward gets to that for me was so powerful. It was hard to read because knowing what I, I knew was going to be his fate in the end. I'm going to go on to the parallels and moments of irony that I found throughout the book. <laughs> and <laughs> people are going to get tired of me saying... laughing because I'm like, ah, where was that irony? Yeah. Yes, you're right. <laughs> but people are going to get tired of me saying, but I did message you on this as well. You know, again, not giving too much away, but there's a part in the book where Agnes explains to Ella, who are back in um, the 1800s, so this is before Spring and Tempe, so this is their family before, Agnes explains to Ella that she can, this is kind of difficult to do without giving like more of the story away, but she can rub a special herb, which is essentially poison, in between her legs, because what we find out is that Ella has been abducted. She's 12 years old, and she's been abducted to be on the Walker farm, and essentially to break the curse, and to to reproduce, but that there's this herb and Mama Skins, you know, explains it as well. She can rub between her legs and it burns terribly and it will essentially prevent her from getting pregnant, going through that process. And there's moments where different characters are looking at this and Tempe decides that she doesn't want to do this. And she then has a very ironic end to her life. I just, I don't want to, I want to talk about it, but I don't want to talk about it because I don't want to give it all away. And everybody listening to this is probably going to be like, oh my gosh, Nicole, you've already ruined it anyway. You might as well just talk about it. But she dies very tragically and there's just irony there. And then Spring struggles with her faith. She very much questions this concept of God and, and what she believes in. But then she meets a man named Christian. And I just was like, oh my gosh, these are all like coming together. And it's just so clever. And I would just love to know how you did this, how you crafted this. Is it something that was just like, yes, this is it. I want it to be clever, but also subtle at the same time. How did you make this happen? I have to say, so I write character-driven prose. And so that is, um, like when I was talking about getting to know the characters by like writing them and seeing where they want to go, uh, that's kind of, that's what drives the prose. So in the scene where Agnes is explaining about, and it's funny because you say herb and I say herb. So when she when she's explaining- It's because I've been herb. over here too long, Yvonne. <laughs> to all my American listeners, herb. To all my English listeners, we'll say herb. <laughs> <laughs> With the herb that she- <laughs> That she uses. Yeah, it burns and it, it has all these different properties that can allow these characters to, to exercise some sort of agency in their life. And while you're right, it is ironic that Tempe, who decides not to use this because she doesn't want this experience, she, um, she doesn't want that sensation, she wants to take her own control. She's not necessarily thinking about whether or not she's going to have a child or not have a child, but it's mainly just that she does not want to do this practice that um, has been passed down from her mother. And so then that and the way that she does end up dying, you're right, it is ironic, but it wasn't um, it wasn't a plan. 
it wasn't me saying, um, it was more because I had that image of her in a doorway. Yeah. That's how I knew how she was going to die. And even though every time I had that image, it, um, like it broke my heart, but it was just like, I want to say that's how it was foretold, but no, <laughs> but, um, but that's kind of, it was, it wasn't even just, that's how I saw it, but it was just, that's how I guess my, that creative side of my mind yeah. saw it. And so it was like, that's her end. Yeah. I remember you messaging me back and being like, I'm really sorry that it's made you cry, but I'm also really happy that it's made you cry as yeah, well. You know, I am that sort of person. So I remember there was a scene, and it's not even in the book in that way, but there was a scene in one of the drafts while I was doing the PhD, and it was a character who, she's in the book only briefly in this version as Spinner, but in a draft, it was in an earlier draft, she was, you never saw her, but a character who was ideally to help the girls escape. He had a daughter and I think it was, um, this is when it was letters to Edward because I think it was like a bill of sale and it was Spinner and Little Spinner was the names that were written on there. And it wasn't, that they, they weren't written as names, they were written as items. So that was letting the reader know that his wife and daughter had been sold. And Jen was like, oh my gosh, that she cried when she read that. And I was like, oh, thank you. Because, I mean, well, it made me sound like a horrible person. But I was like, oh, I love that you cried. That's not the normal reaction to when someone cries. You're like, oh, I'm so sorry. But Yvonne's like, yes, I made someone cry. That's great. Do you know what? And it's funny, like, I don't know if we talked about it, but you know how, like, when people say um, they've picked up the book. And so what I say is, I hope you enjoy it. Mm -hmm. But because that sounds like that's a nice thing to say. But actually what I, like, what I'm thinking is, oh, I hope it touches you. I hope it yeah. breaks your heart. Yeah. I hope that you you meet these characters and you just cannot let them go. Nope. I hope they um they take residence in your soul. You really can't tweet that. And so, <laughs> or in I my to- case, we just say that I had a physical reaction to this book in the sense <laughs> that I was left like, oh my God, heartbroken and like I couldn't move on. And I messaged you and I was like, I don't know how to read another book after this. I just don't know how. Gosh. And I've said to you multiple times, but I'm going to say it on the record here. I know it's only March and it'll be April when this comes out, but your book is my favorite of this year. And oh my gosh, everyone who's read it will understand. Everyone who has yet to read it will, will totally understand. And I would love to, as we kind of come to a close, I want to know how you want to be remembered. I want to know how you want your book to be remembered. And I want to know how you want your characters to be remembered. That's what I want to know now. So for the way I want to be remembered is as a person who had a wonderful, beautiful, love-filled life, who um, is creative and who has met all her goals and objectives. Because I mean, like, gosh, I want to have the novels, I want to have short stories, I want to have a play, a movie, I'd like to have a series for kids, a video game, because, you know, of course, and a show. And once I've done all those things on like like the creative side, but I mean, I also want to be remembered as a loving mom. And, you know, if my kids have babies, then, you know, like, I'd like to be, you know, a loving grandmother. So I want, I want all those things. I also want to be known as, um, I don't know, a caring academic. So not just that I, I mean, of course, I would like to be a professor, but career-wise I'd like to be known as caring and generous like with my time and of information those are the sort of things I'd like to be remembered as I think yeah loving creative and kind and then my book I'd like it to be remembered as something that touched people like around the world so that people could read it and see maybe their history represented or their stories represented and so and if it's not there it empowers them to share their stories and their representations of their stories and I want it to be one of those books that just touches people and then the characters I'd like them to be remembered as flawed loving, creative, and complex. 
I'm definitely not crying right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, Yvonne, you're just too good at this. This is just, you're just too good at making people cry. I then now have to know, are we going to see these characters again? Or do you have anything on the horizon that will be coming out that we need to know about and keep an eye out for? As far as seeing these characters again, I mean, gosh, who wouldn't love to see them on the big screen somewhere? I would absolutely love that. As far as seeing them again in another book, I don't know. I wouldn't rule it out. Okay. I would say that that's not the next book that I'm working on. So I am starting research for another novel and we'll kind of see what happens. (laughs) With that one, titles that we were talking about earlier, I have a title coming out with Penguin Random House, where I was able to write three titles in the book. And afterwards, we'll talk about the title of that again. Yes. And let's see. I think that's mostly what I'm working on. I'm writing a short story with my friend Naomi. So like we're swapping short stories. So I've written mine. She'll finish hers and then we'll exchange them and give each other feedback and then kind of see like where they go. Because I don't know, I'd love to be published in like the New Yorker. um, I know, right? (laughs) Yeah, I think that's what I'm working on now. Oh, that's very exciting. I cannot wait. So last question. As the premise for this podcast, I would love for you to imagine that your book has been placed on a shelf and it's great literature frozen in time and you can add any author or book that either has inspired you or you just picked up and you loved and it would be on your bookshelf and frozen in time with your book. What authors would you want on that bookshelf and what books would you want? Anything by Toni Morrison, Maya Angelou, Alice Walker, and I'd love to be next to Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God. That's such a good bookshelf. Oh, (laughs) man. I'm just going to take a moment to think about that bookshelf. So, oh, that's amazing. That is such a great collection of books. So if anyone wants to get in touch with you to tell you how much they loved your book or how much they love you, what are the best ways to do that? (laughs) So I would say Instagram, but I'd be lying because I'm on there. <laughs> don't use it effectively at all. On Instagram, I am why I write Battle Felton, and it's Y W H Y. So they could try me there, and I may or may not respond because I'll be going, "Wow, what do I do next?" <laughs> um, I'm on Twitter at why Battle Felton. Those are probably the easiest ways I think to to connect with me or through my publicist Millie Seward <laughs> with uh, Dialogue <laughs> Books. And Elise Dillsworth, my agent. So I think, yeah, if it's something positive, tweet me. <laughs> if not, then keep it to yourself. We, no, don't have t- we don't have time for those negative people, Yvonne. So we're not even going to give them a platform to contact you on. And also no one else can direct message you. That's only reserved for me. So uh, <laughs> don't get any ideas, but also don't flood Yvonne's inbox either with <laughs> questions about the book. In fact, if you have questions about the book, just tweet me. I'll totally be happy to answer those for you. I'll field those questions for you, Yvonne, and <laughs> pass on the other ones for you. I genuinely like your book. I've had all the feelings talking talking to you. Thank you so much for chatting with me. As I said, Remembered is my favorite book of 2019, and it's going to be very high up there for my all-time favorite books. It redefines the definition of beautiful in just touching, and I just loved it so much. So everyone, buy it, read it, talk about it. If you've already read it, read it again, and just (laughs) literally everyone will understand why I'm so enthusiastic about this book. But thank you so much for joining me today. 
Can I, can I say thanks so much for your close reading and for your attentive questions? I absolutely <laughs> appreciate it. I love how you read into the book and like read the book and experienced it and that you shared your experiences with me. I absolutely love and appreciate that. So thank you so much as well. Oh, just everybody's going to get all the feelings from just listening to this episode because <laughs> they'll just understand where we're both coming from. But thank you so much, Yvonne. Absolutely loved it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Shelf Life. I'd love for you to tell me what you thought of it, either on Twitter or Instagram, or by leaving a review on iTunes. Until next time, happy reading!